0: killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant and the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the covenant of the Lord came into camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his house. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Let's pray. Lord, as we read your word and learn from it, I pray that you would help us to understand, to be moved by what we read, to think, how are we like Israel? How are we like Samuel? How are we like many of the people here? But ultimately, Lord, to understand where your son, Jesus, is brought out either in contrast To the attitudes that we see or foreshadowed in the passage, Lord, help us to be thankful for all that you've done in redemptive history, even here in Samuel's time, but certainly in the cross. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the book of 1 Samuel, it began well. Even though we were introduced to a difficult situation, which was Hannah, Hannah. Barren, calling out to the Lord, tormented by Penina, yet we saw the miraculous intervention of God, didn't we? We even saw the blessing of the child Samuel and listened to Hannah's victorious song. Perhaps even with that start though, you were prepared for today's passage because of Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons that we read about in chapters 2 and 3. And the question that we face as we propel ourselves into chapter 4 is what will happen when these two worlds collide? This world of Samuel and those like Hannah that hope for redemption of, the, of corrupt Israel. And we see that world and then we see opposed to them the world of Israel partly represented by Hophni and Phineas, partly represented by the tolerant passivity of people like Eli, will corrupt Israel listen to the one that God has raised up to be the answer to her barrenness? Or will she continue in the sins, in the spirit of Hophni and Phineas, continuing to do what is right in her own eyes and running after foreign gods? And the last two verses of chapter 3 seem so promising. You can read them with me. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So even though in ways I'm I'm not surprised by what I see in the very next verses in chapter 4, Given the situation with Eli, given the situation with Hophni and Phinehas in chapters 2 and 3, yet I still find chapter 4 disappointing, especially after that ending in chapter 3. Don't you? I'm, I'm not saying, of course, that God is disappointing. I'm, obviously, he raised up Samuel and sp- Samuel spoke God's word to the nation. It's Israel that's disappointing. And what we're supposed to see in chapter 4 is the great contrast, on the one hand, between the statement and the word of the Lord and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. To see that contrast, on the one hand, with the events that are related to us in chapters 4 through 7. And notice that it doesn't say that all Israel came to Samuel Rather, the opposite, Samuel's word came to Israel, but Israel didn't listen. And in fact, when it came to the time when the nation was supposed to receive instruction from the Lord by consulting him, namely going out to battle, there was no seeking of God, no consultation with Samuel. Instead, we're simply told factually that Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. And I don't know what you think of when you hear the word Philistine, although I would venture to bet that you probably recall images of David and Goliath and the Philistines on one side of the ravine and the Israelites on the other. Perhaps you think of Samson and his various adventures. And if you're like many Americans, when you hear the word Philistine, you would think of a primitive, backwards group of people. And in fact, in in English, the word Philistine means someone who's uncultured but that does not describe the philistines of the bible not at all in fact the exact opposite is the truth philistia was the nation that occupied the coast of the mediterranean sea just west of israel it was the israelites who had primitive weapons the israelites who had rural settlements The Philistines controlled the iron mines. They had iron weapons and chariots. They had large cities. They had an advanced culture for their time. And from the moment that the Israelites took over Canaan, the Philistines were a thorn in their side. They were superior in so many ways from simply a sociopolitical, national perspective. Stronger. The Bible mentions Philistia 250 times, mostly in the context of one war after another. And then going back to 1 Samuel 4, we read that Israel went out to fight against this group of people. But as I said, they didn't seek the Lord's will through Samuel. And notice in verse 3 that when the Philistines killed 4,000 men in that initial battle, the elders asked, Why has the Lord defeated us today? And so I want to give them credit. The elders got something right. The Lord, not the Philistines, had defeated them. No enemy, not even the army of Philistia, with its iron weapons and iron chariots, could stand against the Lord and his people unless God would allow it. So the elders got that right, but they answered the question too quickly. Yes, the Lord had defeated them, but they should have let that question just sit and bother and simmer and trouble them for a while. Why? Why had the Lord defeated them? They should have been crying out to God. They should have been talking with Samuel. But they didn't. Nor did they ask, what have we done? Rather, they said, let's go bring the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh. And when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. And I hope as we read that together, that word it, that pronoun, one little pronoun, two, word, two letters, should have stood out. It may save us, not God. The Ark of the Covenant was a box about four feet long, a little less than three feet wide, covered with gold. The lid was also covered with gold, had two cherubim carved angels standing on the top with their wings facing one another and inside that ark were the tablets of stone on which God had written the Ten Commandments for Moses and God had required that this ark would be brought before the people whenever they moved to a new location and whenever they went out to fight the Lord's battles. What I want to ask is this. If the people thought that the Lord was behind their loss to the Philistines, why hadn't they taken the ark in the first place? Doesn't that suggest that there were some foundational problems with the whole battle against Philistia? It's as if the elders got together for a quick huddle after a devastating loss of 4,000 men and said, Uh, did we forget the ark? Go and get it so it can save us from Philistia. And the elder's response is to go and grab the ark so that it would save them reveals to me that they're pursuing their own priorities. There's no humility, no seeking after God, no pursuing Samuel. There's no sacrifice made for sin in the thought that perhaps God had turned his face from them. There's none of that. For the Israelites, at some point in their history, likely during the period of the Judges, the ark had become a superstitious relic. That's how bad it was in Israel. We forgot the ark. Go get it. Its magical power is going to save us. And of course, they were no different than the men and women several thousand years later during the dark and middle ages who paid a fortune for so-called relics. Merchants would sell to men and women supposed wooden pieces of the cross or a nail that was, had been used to nail Christ to the cross or a thorn from his crown of thorns or a piece of his final garment. In fact, the whole thing about the Holy Grail is that that was the cup that Jesus drank from at the Last Supper, That was the Holy of Holies. If you could get that cup. At least Indiana Jones thinks you'll have eternal life. Well, in the Crusades, young boys, they carried these relics into battles against the Turks. Why? Because they thought that there was some magic quality to... These items that would help them win. And they were no different than the elders of 1 Samuel 4. And really, it's it's no different than today. No different than today when thousands flock to churches every week saying, It will save us. But I tell you this morning, it, going to church, carrying a Bible, listening to a sermon, it won't save any of us. Yes, those are all good things. Religious devotion, attendance, dedication, experience. They will not, though, save one human soul. So the Israelites trusted in the ark, the symbol of God's presence, rather than God's actual presence to save them. And what happens as a result, their defeat is even greater in the second battle than in the first battle. Instead of losing 4,000 men, this time they lose 30,000 men. More than seven times as many casualties as experienced the first time around, and the ark is taken by the Philistines. So friends, it is not enough to have the outward form of religion, no matter how orthodox or biblical. The outward form of a house is worthless if the house itself is built on sandy soil. You know, when a hurricane comes in Florida and the winds blow, the great issue there for those who live in that house is not, what does our house look like? It's not how big is it, how comfortable is it, how many rooms does it have, does it have every feature. The question is, is it built on a solid foundation? And for Israel, the question was not whether their nation... Their faith and their welfare were built on the Ark of the Covenant, but whether they were built on the God of the Covenant. It's not religion that saves. It is a relationship with the God of Israel as it revealed in Jesus Christ. So remember those points. And ask yourself, is my life built on the right foundation In 1 Samuel, we see that there were 30,000 men lying dead in fields because of a misplaced trust. That cost is far too high to put your trust in anything less than the finished work of Jesus Christ. I want to glance at a few more items in this in the next chapter. Look at verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. And we see there, this, the chapter ends with the judgment of God that we read about last week in chapters 2 and 3. This judgment against Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And Phinehas' wife, she's near term with their own son. She hears the news about the battle and it sends her into labor. And they're trying to cheer her about the birth of their son, but she will not be cheered. And she names her son Ikhavod, no glory. The ark had been taken by the Philistines. Phineas's wife said that the glory had gone. And what she meant, and she seems to be in this moment an insightful woman, is that there was glory on the ark, because the top of the ark spoke of atonement and mercy and reconciliation with God there was glory in the ark because the ark carried the tablets of God's law as a testament to who God was and there was glory over the ark because down upon the mercy seat of the ark itself rested the Shekinah glory of God So there was glory on, in, and over the ark. And when the ark was suddenly gone from Israel, it represented the withdrawal of God from his blessing upon the people. And that's what Phineas's wife saw. God has left us. He's turned his face from us. So if you were to look at your own home this morning, would you say that the glory of the Lord is present? Or has it departed? Have you in your household been living as if God is not present? Was God's Word once read and loved and talked about, obeyed daily in your home? But it's been a long time since it was even discussed. What about our churches, where pulpits once thundered with the great gospel? What is the state of the American church? What about our nation, where laws were once fashioned and framed, at least foundationally, by God's principles? Where is God's glory? And the Hebrew word for glory, chavod, means weightlessness. I mean, not weightlessness, weightiness. The exact opposite. There was a day when our nation and our churches and our families felt that weighty heaviness of God and bowed down before that Glory. What can these do? What can we do to bring back the departed glory of God? Is there some secret that we need to learn? Well, yes. And yet the reason why it may likely disappoint some, because it's not a secret formula or ritual like the Israelites thought. It's not bringing some mighty magical relic like grandma's Bible and putting it on the shelf in the living room. The secret is open your Bible. Open Grandma's Bible. Read the Bible. Seek the Lord while He may be found. To regain her lost power, the church must seek God and His righteousness. A.W. Tozer once wrote, the God we must learn to know is is God the Father Almighty. Almighty maker of heaven and earth, the only wise God and Savior. He is the one who sits upon the circle of the earth, who stretches out the heavens as a curtain and spreads them out as a tent to dwell in, who knows the starry host by number, calls them all by name through the greatness of his power, who sees the works of man as vanity and who puts no confidence in princes and asks no counsel of kings." And Tozer's right. We need to seek that God. Not the practical God. Not the useful God. Not the milquetoast God. Not the weak God. Not the effeminate God. We need to let His heaviness and the weight of His eternal glory abound in our church, in our nation, and in our family. Turn to chapter 5 and see just a few highlights of what happened when Philistia took the ark. Starting with verse 2, The Philistines took the ark of God and they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And this is oftentimes one of children's favorite stories. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen flat on his face before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon, and they put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, he had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon, and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold, and only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. That is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. And then the remaining verses of chapter 5 talk about how God struck the city of Ashdod with tumors. And then the ark is moved to a different city, Gath. And God strikes that city too. And humorously in verse 10 we read that when the Philistines tried to move it on to the next of five, you know, total of five major cities in Philistia, this time Ekron, the people come running out saying, don't bring that thing here, right? What's the significance of all of that? Well, the Philistines brought the ark to Ashdod. They placed it in the ark, the ark in the temple of their idol Dagon. Many of the nations around Israel had refused to worship the true God. Instead, as you know, they worshipped false gods. They worshipped the typically the forces of nature, like lightning or volcanoes, or worshipped gods that represented natural phenomena or even animals like alligators or hippopotamuses in in Egypt that they were frightened of. What do you think Dagon was the god of? No, he was not some bolt-wielding Jupiter type of god. He was a fish god. (laughs) Dagon was god of fish. Why was he god of fish? Well, think about where the Philistines were. They're They're at the Mediterranean Sea. They're a coastal sea people. They rely upon the fish of the ocean to be able to survive. And so the ark is placed in front of the fish god as if to say, here's a prize to him for allowing the Philistines to win. But even though God is not going to be manipulated by his people Israel, he is certainly not going to be treated as a prize and put before a fish god. And so the scripture says that when the priests of this this false god, this idol, came to their temple, they discovered that it had fallen on the ground. And the picture is that the idol is worshiping God. Prostrate, face down, pointing towards the ark. I think what we see here is this picture between, it's, a, it's like a, a parable, a living parable or a metaphor, an analogy of the fight between truth and falsehood. Between the idols of this world that have blinded the people of this world who suppress the truth and God. The Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who stands supreme and alone in the universe who is truth. And God will not give His glory to any other, nor allow His praise to be given to the idols that we worship. The world believes, and a lot of apostate churches teach, that like the Philistines, there is a power in Christianity, but they all seek to place that power at the feet of their own gods. Businessmen, politicians, burdened with anxieties, problems, decisions, may in a desperate moment pray. The Same thing happens with soldiers when bombs are exploding all around them. What does the businessman pray for? That God's power might somehow work to keep his business afloat. What does the soldier pray if he isn't truly a believer in the Lord? That God will let him survive. And too many pay lip service to the claims of Jesus Christ, especially at times of importance. And men and women take Christianity, they try to take some form of comfort from it, but then they go away and live their life as if Jesus didn't exist. And what they're trying to do is place God, or at least his power, into the service of their idols. They're not willing to leave what they truly worship. And I think that if I can just bring God into, into this world of my true gods, that somehow it'll impart power. But, friends, your idols will fall before the Lord Jesus. Don't be fooled. Whatever it is that you value and prize that is higher than God Almighty, it will fall broken in worship before God. We talk about the trees clapping their hands and the rocks shouting for joy. Even the idols are going to show that God is supreme. What God do you serve? What is occupying the throne of your heart? Chapters 4 and 5 of 1 Samuel are a record of how the word came to Samuel. How Samuel preached it to Israel, but the people would not listen. They are in essence a miniature here in, in this chap, these chapters of the history of Israel as a whole, as it unfolds throughout the whole Old Testament. Time and again, Israel facing the consequences Of their refusal to listen to God. Here they're defeated by the Philistines. But later they'll be conquered by the Assyrians. Then by the Babylonians. Then by the Romans. It may seem a light thing for us to decide not to listen to God. A light thing for our nation to refuse to listen. But all that Israel experienced was defeat and hopelessness. And the same thing happened in the early church. There were places where the gospel flourished in those first few centuries. Gospel came with power, for example, to Ephesus. And the word of God was initially accepted and feared, and people loved the Lord. But in time, Ephesus began to turn away from their first love. That's what that first letter by Jesus is about in the book of Revelation. Just before his death on the cross, Jesus prayed, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. The glory of God is Jesus. Is he a part of your life, or has the glory of God departed? I want you to look at one more small section, this time, chapter 7 starting with verse three, because I don't want to end on a negative note. There is hope. Understand that what we read here in chapter seven is 20 years after the events of chapters four and five. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the ashtroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals, they put away the Ashtaroth, they served the Lord only. And then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day and said, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And they said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb, offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Let me just stop there for a second. Do you see the great contrast between chapter 4 and chapter 7? how everything is so different. Seeking the Lord, being broken over sin, Samuel speaking forth God's word to them, they offering worship before God, seeking his counsel, so 180 degrees different than what happened in chapter 4. Chapter 4, Israel's defeated. 34,000 people between two battles die. Chapter 7, what happens? The Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzpah, pursued the Philistines, struck them as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzbah and Shin, and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Isn't God merciful? this is 20 years later. 20 years. It took that long, even after the ark was returned, even after they heard about all that God did to to Gath, for the people to be ready to listen to God. And we're not told exactly what happened during those 20 years, but we can be assured that God continued to discipline them. Perhaps that's why we're told that they lamented after God there in chapter 7. They lamented. And undoubtedly throughout this time, you know, sometimes we don't appreciate because we we read from one chapter to the next and, and, you know, 20 years has passed and we go, wow, what has Samuel been doing for 20 years He's been faithfully preaching the word. He's been faithfully speaking to the nation. And it tells me that even in the midst of dark times like we live right now, even in the midst of dark times, we need people like Samuel to be faithful, to continue to proclaim the truth, because it may take 20 years for people to listen. But the day may come when they are ready and that the church is ready, that the nation is ready. Because Israel was ready, Samuel summons the people to Mitzpah and you see what happens there. They repent of their sin. And it tells me that if we have been serving Dagon... If we have not been listening to the Lord, if we have been trusting in the symbols of God's presence, but not in God himself, that while we cannot count on tomorrow, yet God is long-suffering and still offers before us, while today is today, to turn towards him, to listen. The solution is to repent, like the Israelites did, to seek the Lord. And what did Samuel say to the people after these 20 years? Did he encourage them with words like, let's try and get along and see if we can cooperate together? No, he gets to the heart of the issue. He says boldly and bluntly, if you will return to the Lord with all of your heart, he will deliver you. There is no compromise with God. Put away the strange gods. God's. Put away the astroth, put away the bales. Serve the Lord only. Whatever you are serving that is distracting you from God, put it away. That's the only way you will receive God's blessing. Second thing that happened at Mitzbah, as we read in verse 10 is that God thundered upon the Philistines in response to that repentance. And friends, we need to have that kind of expectation. A lot of us kind of, we get to the point where we go, okay, I'm ready to repent. And then we have no faith in the strength of God. We forget about the God who destroyed an entire army as Jehoshaphat was up singing psalms and walked up to the crest of a hill only to see that everyone was already defeated before he got there. We forget about the God who let fly hailstones large enough to kill men. We forget about a God who went before Gideon and confused a a much greater number of people. We forget about the God who this day, to the people who had iron chariots and iron weapons, how God thundered upon them and they were destroyed. Samuel sets up a memorial stone. It's an Ebenezer stone. It's a word that means stone of help. And it was a symbol that God had been with them to that point. It was an acknowledgement that the Philistines were defeated by God and not by Israel. And we sing a hymn often, Come Thou Fount, in which there's a stanza that says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. And what are we saying in that moment? We are saying, till this point, God has helped us. But I want you to hear that careful clarification by Samuel because it's still a call to faithfulness. Till this point. And it leaves open the question of what will be your future? Your enemy may be defeated today and sometimes in amazing ways. When we truly turn in in faithful repentance to God, God can and often does thunder over our enemies. And the very things that seemed insurmountable and impossible in God's strength, not because of us, but because of Him, they become defeated. And they may be defeated today, but will it be the same tomorrow? We cannot... Turn to God in convenience in those moments when we most need him. We need to live a life of ongoing repentance and reliance and dependence upon God. So friends, let us remember these things. Our great hope is Jesus Christ, the glory of God. Make him the center point of your life and your home, and your enemies will not stand. Let's pray. Father, you are the glorious, mighty God, the holy God who thundered upon Philistia, the God who destroyed the Midianites, the Egyptians, and so many others. There is no army that can stand against you. And today we don't find ourselves as men and sons fighting in million person armies. We don't have as a reality of our life a next door neighbor 50 miles away coming and trying to destroy our crops and our homes. But Lord, we face enemies. We face the enemies of a world that's turned from you. We face the enemy of our flesh. And Lord, we so often want to have the quick fix from you. We want to serve our idols and still Have you be that quick band-aid and remedy for us in the moment when we feel pinched. And I pray, Lord, that our lesson today that we've learned from your word is that you will have no compromise. You will not allow us to use you as or use the things of your name the trappings of religiosity as a substitute for you, you will turn your presence and face from those who serve the symbols of your presence and not your name. And you will make our idols bow down before you, whether we throw them down or not. And so, Lord, I pray that we would learn today and we would repent like the Israelites and we would seek you while you may be found. For today is the day of salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.